right, thanks, band. Welcome again, uh, and Merry Christmas. I don't know if I said that yet this morning, but uh, Merry Christmas. Hope you had a, a fun celebration of, of Christ's birth with family and friends uh, the past week, past few days. I know my family uh, did, and uh, one of the fun things that we did this year is that my wife made uh, a special Advent calendar type thing. So if you're not familiar, there's a, a kid's Bible out there called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Absolutely fantastic, and uh, it has actually 25 stories leading up to uh, Jesus' birth. So uh, my wife made all these, these ornaments here. Um, kind of hard to see, but they're really fantastic. Each ornament, so it would open it up, and it has to do with uh, the story that we read for that day. So our, our two-and-a-half-year-old thought that was, that was pretty awesome. And so as we're going through it, I, I was amazed at about, I think it was day 24, as we were reading about Jesus' birth, I was amazed with uh, the way that they spoke about how Jesus came into the world. And so maybe like me, you uh, have heard this story many, many times, and so sometimes hearing it rephrased a little bit differently or even simplified uh, in, in a kid's Bible can be a, a, a new way to have it fresh and impactful to you. So this is how they described the coming of Jesus. This is how the Jesus Storybook Bible answered the question of how. How did Jesus come into this world? How did the king of the universe enter into history? They say everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help his people, just as he had promised in the beginning. But how would he come? What would he be like? What would he do? Mountains would have bowed down, seas would have roared, trees would have clapped their hands, but the earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, he came in. And when no one was looking, in the darkness, he came. The God who flung the planets into space and kept them whirling around and around, the God who made the universe with just a word, the one who could do anything at all, was making himself small and coming down as a baby. Here at Hiawatha Church, we've been uh, celebrating Advent for the past couple weeks. Uh, the past two Sundays, we've had uh, Advent or, or Christmas-specific uh, sermons Advent just meaning the, the word coming. So we've been celebrating and looking at the coming of Christ and, and what Jesus' birth uh, meant to us, to the world, the implications of that. And today we're going to continue our Advent series. We're going to do one more uh, Advent sermon here. And uh, looking at Christ's birth, but not at the surroundings, not at the setting, not at the characters, like some of our other Advent sermons have been on. But today we're going to look at the how. How did Jesus come into this world? Yeah, we know he, he came uh, to a virgin. He was born in a stable, lied in a manger. But we're going to look beyond that to the how. In what manner did Jesus come into this world? And the Bible has a plethora of, of details surrounding the how. The how is very important. This morning we're going to look at uh, a specific passage in the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church, and he's describing the how. How Jesus came into this world. He gives us many details, many specifics, and exactly what happened as Jesus left his home in heaven, left the Father and the Holy Spirit, and entered into our world. And we're going to see today how the king of the universe, how he denied himself, how he gave up his rights, how he emptied himself, and even became a servant. 
in order that he might bring salvation to his people. And that's why I'm entitling our sermon this morning, The King Who Made Himself Nothing. So take a moment and, and begin to try to understand the weight of that. The King Who Made Himself Nothing. And for many of us, if we know this story really well, uh, it's, it's hard to not just read over that. It's hard not to just say, well, I know that that is what happened. Also, we don't even have kings around today. You know, there's probably a few that uh, actually act like, like kings in the ancient world still around today. But for, for the most part, we don't have kings. We just live in a very different world. So understanding a king making himself nothing, denying his rights and his power and his glory to come be a servant, that's just very, very foreign to us. So I was trying to think about what, what, what would be meaningful to us, what would be a way for us to, to really understand this, to really feel this. And most of us in this room, we're, we're Americans. And, and as Americans, we have, we have many rights. We live in a great country. And sometimes, as Americans, we have a, have a feeling of entitlement, whether for good or for bad. We live in a country where we have lots of rights. We have the right to protect ourselves, the right to be treated fairly, the right to uh, have freedom of speech, rights to uh, be able to pursue happiness, the right to be free to not be controlled by anyone. And if you think about it, often as Americans we get really worked up when some of our rights get taken away. Whether we are not being treated fairly, whether we are purchasing a good or a service and that company is not living up to it. Think about if you're talking to some computer on the phone trying to get something fixed and just how annoyed and angry we get because we think we deserve to have uh, good customer service or a product we paid for to work or or if some other type of injustice comes up where we lose our rights or some of our rights get taken away, it's a really big deal to us and we get pretty mad. So if we get so worked up about losing our rights, about not being treated fairly, how much more should the creator and king of the universe demand his rights and receive what is due to him? Yet Jesus, the king of the universe, he denied his rights. He gave up his rights. He did not use his divinity, his power, to his advantage, but rather for our sake, because of his great love for us, he came into this world. He entered humanity, and he made himself nothing. We're going to look at Philippians 2 today, verses 5 through 11. Uh, the early church, most people think that this was a, a, a song that the early church kind of sang, like a a few lines describing how Jesus came into the world, and they, they sang it to each other, they repeated it, they memorized it, especially uh, until uh, the New Testament was put together. So we're going to read from that today, especially looking, looking at this passage through the lens of how, in what manner, did Jesus come into this world. The verse was, uh, will be up there on the screen. They're also inside your worship folder if you'd like to follow along. Starting in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage. Now we see your heart for us, for humanity, how you come uh, bringing salvation, the salvation that you promised from long ago, how you denied your rights, you gave up your advantages, you became like one of those whom you were trying to save. Help us to understand this, help this to, to be meaningful for us today. Holy Spirit, break down any, any walls or lies that we have been believing about this. Help us to, to truly believe and see the way that you came into this world. Help that to mean something to us, to change uh, our, our minds and our hearts. We invite you uh, to move and to speak this morning in your name. Amen. All right, so what, what happened at the Incarnation? How, again, we're asking this question, how? How did Christ come into this world? So Paul starts off this passage right off the bat by saying definitively and stating that, that, that Jesus is God. He starts off by saying that Jesus was fully God, yet he added humanity. So he didn't cease to become, uh, or he didn't cease being God. He didn't stop being God, but rather he added humanity. There's a, a theological phrase that we use to describe this often that goes, without ceasing to become what he was, he became what he was not. So this is the, the, the tension of the incarnation. Jesus continuing to be God the Father, or, sorry, not God the Father, continuing to be God, yet adding humanity. Verse 6 started off by saying, Speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, and uh, the NIV also or translates this a little bit different, says, uh, who being in the very nature, God. So we see here at the very beginning, Paul saying, this Jesus, he really is God. He's in the form of God. In his very nature, he is God. Theologically, this doctrine is called the, the hypostatic union. This truth that Jesus was both, when, when he came into this world, he was both fully God and fully man at the same time. How did this work? We're not really sure. It's, it's a, one of the big tensions of the Bible, but it's a truth that the church has believed for, for almost 2,000 years. A lot of the early uh, councils, uh, the church leaders would get together and talk about this because it was so important. Was Jesus fully man? Was Jesus still fully God? All right, I'll use, I'll use this one for now. Uh, Jesus, in his ministry, uh, d define, or speaks about this, tells his disciples that he really was God. Uh, John 5, 18, he says, this, or uh, John the author writes, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that's why they killed Jesus. Not, not just because he was breaking Jewish laws and, and uh, upsetting the religious rulers, but because he was calling himself God. He was making himself equal to God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 speaks of this. The glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. And again, the beginning of uh, the Gospel of John starts by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Speaking of Jesus, another name for him being the Word, and the Word was God. So Paul starts off by, by making sure his readers know that Jesus is God. Jesus is not just a man who is going to live a perfect life and, and save humanity, but Jesus was and is God. And after he makes this clear, after the writer of Philippians makes this clear, he then goes on to explain how Jesus was also fully man, how he added his humanity. All right, so the author of, of Philippians, after making sure that his, uh, the church and the readers know that Jesus was fully God, he goes on to explain what's going on with the incarnation, how Jesus is adding his humanity. The word incarnation actually means to put on flesh. So what's going on when Jesus is being born at the, at the incarnation, at the manger, Jesus is putting on flesh. He's adding a second human nature. And as he's doing it, he's intentionally limiting himself he's intentionally putting limits on his power on his divinity as he's becoming a man verse 7 says but uh, but jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself to become obedient so he's described here as as being born in the likeness of man being found in human form so the Apostle Paul is writing in, in multiple ways, in different language, to get across that he was fully human. That he wasn't just God, kind of as uh, uh, fully God, and just only using his divinity to get through life. Or he wasn't just a ghost or an apparition or something, but that he was fully human as well. And that's great news for us, because Jesus had to be a human in order to be a substitute, in order to die in our place, in order to live the perfect life that we as humans could never live, Jesus had to become a man. And in order to become a man, Christ emptied himself. He limited himself. And as king of the universe, he chose to make himself nothing by becoming a man. Verse 7 said again, but he emptied himself. Or the NIV translates, he made himself nothing. In another one of Paul's letters, he uses a, a financial analogy to kind of help us understand what's going on here. King of the universe becoming a human, becoming even a servant. He writes in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So he's the Lord of the universe. He's rich, he's wealthy, he has great power. And glory and honor, but he chooses to make himself poor so that we who are poor might become rich because of his poverty. You can think of it like, like a, a good father who, even though he has money, he maybe has a retirement, he has uh, possessions, resources, he chooses to work his whole life as hard as he can, not buying anything for himself, saving up his money or giving his money and possessions away so that in his now poverty, 
his son or his daughter can, can now become rich, can now have a great life, can now make it through college or something like that. Similarly, that's what Jesus is doing. Through him giving up his riches, becoming poor, becoming a human, we now have the opportunity to become spiritually rich, to have life. Also, think about Jesus' birth. Think about the circumstances around it, the setting of his birth. How did the king, the ruler, the supreme being of the universe enter the world? It wasn't through fanfare. It wasn't through a parade. It wasn't through all the, the news agencies showing up and, and having coverage and letting the whole world know that the king was born. But just animals showed up at his birth. And just lowly, blue-collar shepherds were there. Think about how excited people get when a loved one or a friend has the birth of a baby. My wife and I, we just had uh, our second child just a few weeks ago, a little over a month ago. Uh, that's her right there, Esther Elizabeth. She was born uh, November 21st. And when she was born, we got dozens and dozens of people calling us and texting us, sending messages, wanting to come visit, wanting, wanting to congratulate her. Yet when Jesus was born... He made himself nothing. He condescended himself. And Jesus did not receive a birth like this. He did not see an announcement like this. People celebrating his birth, celebrating with his parents like we usually do. Jesus didn't come as a king, but rather as a servant. Not as a proud ruler, but as a humble man. Not in divine glory, but as a lowly human. Not using his godness, for his advantage, but emptying himself for humanity's advantage. You think about Jesus' ministry, just look at a few events from it. Even, even one of the instances where he enters Jerusalem, the holy city, people are crying Hosanna, they're thinking that he's a coming king. Even in that situation, he still enters the, enters the city, not on a war horse, not as some great king who's coming and has just uh, won a great battle for his, for his people, but rather he comes in on a colt. Or just a little bit later on in the story, we see Jesus on the night, or just, just hours before he's going to be betrayed and abandoned and tortured and ultimately uh, murdered on a cross. The evening before that, what did Jesus do? He washed the feet of his disciples. So an already really gross thing. We, we know about that. I would not want to wash any of your feet. No, no offense. But he did. He, he, we see his, his servanthood. We see him coming as a servant. He, and in that culture, even a grosser thing to do as they wore sandals and walked on dirty roads and uh, things like that. But especially, especially on the night before he was about to die, to go through all this horrible betrayal and torture if there was ever a night where someone could say, hey, focus on me. I'm not going to be a servant tonight. I need you guys to meet my needs and be there for me. This would be the night. But this is when Jesus serves his disciples in, in a very humbling, servant-like way. And then finally, and most importantly, the greatest way that, that Jesus served humanity was on the cross. This was his mission. He came into the world. He became a human for this reason. He defines his mission in 
Mark 10, 45. He says, but even the Son of Man, so a name that Jesus calls himself often, but even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And this is how he's going to serve us. But to give his life as a ransom for many. So the greatest way that Jesus comes as a servant is by dying for the sins of the world on a cross. And this is very different from what religion says. Religion says you serve God. Religion says you do things for God and you kind of work your way up the totem pole or you get, you get closer to God or you get more benefits or you get less punishment. Religion says I serve God, whereas the gospel says God came to serve us. God serves us. And in the greatest way, he serves us on the cross, giving his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' mission was to die on a cross in our place in order to save us from our sins. Verse 8 again says, He humbled himself. And ultimately, this is how he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He wasn't just obedient and, and lived a perfect life, but he, he was obedient to God the Father's plan all the way to death, and not just any kind of death, but a torturous, humiliating death on a cross. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. So speaking of Adam, our, the first human, our, our first parent, our, our first father, for as by one man's disobedience, through, through Adam's disobedience, through his rebellion against God, sin entered the world, and all of us, through our new nature now, are made sinners. Yet there's a new Adam. There's a better Adam, a new prototype of humanity. It, uh, Romans 5.19 finishes with, So by the one man's obedience, through Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. But Christ's obedience cost him. Not just losing his desires and his, his benefits, but it cost him his life. Jesus speaking in Matthew 26. So this is after he's washed his disciples' feet. He's now in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before his uh, torture and death. He's speaking to a few of his disciples, and he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I'm scared to death here. I'm going through so much pain and agony. It feels like death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it, is, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see this beautiful look into both Jesus' humanity and his divinity here. We see Jesus pleading with his, with his disciples saying, be, be here with me, pray with me. I'm going through so much agony and, and suffering and sorrow that it feels like I'm dying here. One of the gospel accounts that he was so much distressed that he was actually sweating blood. And then he goes on to pray before God the Father, and he pleads with them. We see his humanity here. We, we see Jesus say, if at all possible, if there's any other way, to reach my mission. If there's any other way for you to save humanity, let it be. I don't want to be betrayed by my best friends. By, I don't want to be distant, distant from you. I don't want to go through this torturous, humiliating uh, whippings and floggings and beatings and then death. Like we saw, as Paul described in, in Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's actually a really great prayer for us. 
really great prayer for us. Coming to, to God the Father, sharing with him our heart, our desires, our fear, pleading with him, God, if there's any other way, let this not happen or let this happen. But at the same time, we end with, but I trust you. I trust that you are good, that you have my best interest in mind, that you're a loving father. And even though I want this, I'm going to trust you. And not my will, but your will be done. It's a great prayer for us. And here in the garden, we see that Jesus, he did not play his God card here. He did not just throw it down and say, hey, I, I can just revert into my full divinity and all this emotional pain and distress, this beating, this death on a cross. I just won't feel it because I'm God and I don't have to. Or I didn't just call forth angels down from the sky and, and just disintegrate all these people that were about to arrest him. So he doesn't play his God card, but we see Jesus here. We see his full humanity. And we see that in that, he chooses obedience for our sake. Because of his great love for the Father and his plan and his great love for us. And just to remind us that this was his choice. It wasn't just God the Father forcing God the Son to go through this. We do see Jesus' heart here that he wishes he wouldn't have to. But we do see that it's his choice to go through it ultimately. He even says this in John 10. Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Speaking of his life. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And not only did Jesus choose to obey God the Father's plan, to submit to God's plan, but he did it joyfully. Hebrews 12, 2 speaks of this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus didn't just do this begrudgingly, but he did it out of joy. He didn't want to, but he did it with joy, knowing that it would bring his father glory, knowing that it would bring salvation to his people, to those that he loved. Pastor and author Paul Tripp, he helps us understand Christmas in light of this. Help us to understand the manger, knowing Christ's ultimate mission, knowing why Christ came and, and what he came here to do. Does anyone here know Paul Tripp? Maybe a few people have heard his name. If you don't know him, you should know him. Here's a picture of him. He, he is a stud. Look at that mustache. I mean, even, even if you're not a fan of, of mustaches, you have to respect that one. Right there, it's kind of a Tom Selleck or Nick Offerman-like. Very good. But anyway, really, really wise uh, pastor and author. He writes about this. He says, look into that manger representing a new life and see the one who came to die. Hear the angel's celeb celebratory song and remember the sad death that would be the only way that peace would be given. Look at your tree and remember another tree, one not decorated with shining ornaments, but stained with the blood of God. As you celebrate, remember that the pathway to your celebration was the death of the one you celebrate, and be thankful. All right, so the first half of our passage today, the how. How did Jesus, in what manner did Jesus enter the world? Now the second half. So therefore... Since Jesus condescended himself, since, up, since he gave up his advantages as God, since he humbled and emptied himself, 
God the Father returned Christ to his glory on his throne. Verse 9 again. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul in a different letter to a church, the church in Ephesus writes something similar. He says, according to the workings of his, so God the Father here, according to the workings of God the Father's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And Hebrews 1 also speaks of Jesus like this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's what Christ did on the cross. He made purification for the sins. Think about the Old Testament. Think about how people had to make sacrifices. An innocent animal had to die. Blood had to be shed in order for people to become pure, for their sins to be washed away. And that's what Christ did on the cross. I just love how the, the author of Hebrews writes this. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Kind of like a mic drop moment. Like he did this great, great thing and then drops the mic or just sits down because his mission was fulfilled. So as we leave here today, as we finish celebrating this Advent Christmas season, what does this mean for us? Why is this so important? Why is this all over the New Testament? Why does Paul give a lengthy part of his letter to help the church understand how Jesus came and what matter, what manner Jesus came? First thing for us is the first verse in our passage today. We didn't talk about it yet. But he starts off by saying, have this mind among yourself. He's writing it to Christians. He's saying, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So have the same mind that Christ had, and then he goes on to describe it verse after verse after verse, how he humbled himself, how even though he was God, he did not use this divinity, this power to his advantage, but he humbled himself. So the question we have to ask is, how? How do we humble ourselves? How do we have this, this Christ-like mindset where we humble ourselves before others. First thing is, because of the incarnation, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we now can be humble people. Because of the gospel, hum humility is now possible. Before, before this all happened, it was not possible. We, we always had impure motives, or it was always a fake humility. But now, because of the gospel, humility is possible. And it's not only possible, but for us as Christians, those who have trusted in Christ, it's given to us. Look at what he says. Have this similar mind. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's doing two things here. He's commanding it. The only command in this passage, he's saying, have it. Have this mindset. Think like this. Be like this. So a command, but he's also giving a pronouncement. He's saying, church, he's saying, Christian, this is your mind. You have a new way of viewing yourself and viewing the world and viewing God. This is now your mind in Christ Jesus. If you are trusting in Christ as, as your Lord and Savior, this is the natural mindset that, that the Holy Spirit's going to make within you. 
it's now going to become more and more natural for you to have this same humble mind. So don't work for humility in your life, but rather receive it through the gospel. I've heard it said, and this might be helpful for you, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking you're a horrible person or just hating who you are, but rather humility is thinking of yourself less, less often, thinking about other people more, thinking more about Christ and the gospel and other people. Again, so how do we make ourselves humble? It's not by working harder. Rather, Tim Keller says, humility, it's only achieved as a byproduct, as a fruit, as a result of understanding and believing and marveling in the gospel of grace. So Paul tells this church, be humble. Have the same mind, just like Christ. And this is how you're going to do it. And he unpacks the way that Christ came. He said, this mind is already yours. And look at what Jesus did. Look how he was humble. So it's probably similar just to, you know, many of us experienced uh, we celebrated Christmas. Many of you experienced maybe someone being incredibly generous with you these past few days, or very hospitable with you, or very kind to you. And often our natural response to someone being really generous to you is to want to be generous back. Someone gives you an incredible gift, and you want to you wanna thank them, you want to be generous to other people. Or maybe someone welcomed you into their home, was incredibly hospitable, was kind, welcoming, and it makes you want to return that or, or pass that on to others. That's the same thing that Tim Keller is trying to get at here. Hum humility, having a Christ-like mindset, comes from not working hard at it, but rather meditating on and believing in and marveling at the gospel of grace. And it's naturally going to make us, as Christians, become more humble. As followers of Christ, we know that our story will be just like our masters, just like the one whom we follow. And just as Jesus humbled himself and was later restored, raised, and exalted by God the Father, we can expect that to be our story too. Maybe not in this life, maybe at Christ's second coming. But First Peter speaks of that. Speaking again to Christians, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So if you're not a Christian here today, know that you can have this mind. You can have a mind that's humble, that, that thinks of other people as more important than yourself. Maybe you've been trying for years and years and years of your life to be more others-focused or to be less prideful, less arrogant. And you do it well for a while, but every time you fall, every time you, you fall back into your selfishness, to your pride, to your arrogance. But know that putting your trust in Christ, you can actually have this mind. It's one of, the, one of the byproducts, one of the results, one of the gifts of becoming a Christian is that you have a new mind. You're no longer in the prison of self, the prison of always looking out only for yourself, always thinking of your own needs, your own wants, your own desires, trying to make yourself more. But putting your trust in Christ will give you a freedom from the slavery of worshiping yourself, thinking of yourself all right, and secondly, as we leave here tonight, imitate your Savior by being a servant. Earlier, we, we read Jesus defining the reason that he came. He told his disciples, this is my mission. This is why he came. And right before that, we didn't read this passage, but right, right before that are verses where Jesus describes how his disciples should live in light of that as well. 
We're going to read that verse, uh, starting in verse 43. But it shall not be among you. So Jesus speaking to his disciples, uh, contrasting what he's doing with what uh, the, the religious rulers are doing, how they're lording their power over those, their own disciples. And Jesus is saying, but this shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to, not, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus calls his disciples, look at what I'm going to do, or look what I have done, how I have served you, and mirror that, reflect that in smaller ways. So serve each other. If you're a Christian here today, serve each other in large and small ways, in formal and informal ways, in regular and in spontaneous givings of yourself. We're called as Christ's followers to serve others as images, as examples, as reflectors of our God and our Savior who came as a servant. And even when we don't want to, again, remember, we're imitating Christ. How did Christ come and serve us? In the garden, he didn't want to. He told God the Father, I don't want to go through this. But as we saw in Hebrews, he did it for the joy that was set before him. He chose to go through it because of joy. So there is a way to serve each other even when we don't want to. Many of you get up early on a Sunday morning to come here and make coffee, or you'd rather sit with your peers or your friends up here, but you choose to give some time up to teach downstairs, or our community group leaders open their homes regularly, make people coffee, pour into their brothers and sisters in Christ here at Hiawatha. And sometimes we don't want to do it, but we do so joyfully, looking back to our Savior, who, who didn't have to have all the motion there, didn't have to have happiness or choice, or, or be what he wanted to do, but chose to forego all of those, but did so joyfully. So how can this look? Very practically, give of yourself, especially if this is your home, if you call Hiawatha your home, give of yourself on a Sunday morning. Regularly choose to volunteer and help out on a Sunday morning. Whether it's something like uh, teaching kids about Jesus, making coffee, greeting people at the doors, running PowerPoint, playing in the band, whatever it might be, give of yourself on a Sunday morning. And do so joyfully. Don't do so out of compulsion or because the pastor said to do it, but do so as a disciple of Christ. That's why your leaders, that's why your pastors want you to serve. Not so Sunday mornings can happen and we can get things done, but we want you to be more like Christ. We want you to give of yourself. We want you to be servants who look to their God, who has served them first, and even when they're tired, even when they don't want to, they still serve joyfully. And outside of a Sunday morning, weekly, think about how can I embody this gospel? How can I look like my Savior, being a servant to others, whether it's in your community group, whether it's in your family, whether it's a friend from Hiawatha, or maybe it's someone that you don't even know at all. Maybe it's someone that just posts a prayer request on the table, which is our, our online community as a church, or, or someone asking for help. And if this is not your church home, still do this. Do this wherever God has called you, whatever church is your church home. And again, we do this joyfully, like Christ did. We look to him as the example. We do this joyfully, just as Christ joyfully endured the cross, joyfully served us there in the ultimate possible way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for 
not only you're a great example for us, but that you did do this. You did die on the cross for our sins. You did condescend yourself. You humbled yourself. You emptied yourself so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could be given new life, so our sins could be forgiven, so we could return to you. God, help us as a church to have this mind that's ours, that's given to us in Christ Jesus, that we would be servants, that we would have uh, a, a humble mind, that we would think of others as more important than ourselves. And we know that we can't do that by ourselves. We know our, our, our selfishness and our arrogance and our pride that just uh, permeates through our veins. But we know that, that you can change our hearts. We know that in Christ, that old self is dead is dying away. So God, we pray you would make us as a church servants, that you would make us humble for your glory and for our joy. pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond together in song.